Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, and this is episode four of our series with UMass, the Pathways to the Elusive GM Seat um, with their sports management program. I'm fortunate to be joined by Kobe Altman, uh, general manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers, and really excited to talk about uh, his career path into the industry, uh, some of the accomplishments that he's been able to achieve uh, throughout his his journey already, and, and looking forward to discussing kind of uh, what's next. Uh, you know, as as he embarks on uh, the 2021 season upcoming. But uh, nonetheless, Kobe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate uh, the invite and um, pretty cool title series there for your for your podcast there and um, anything. I can do to help the UMass sports management program. It, it obviously was pivotal uh, for my career development and um, yeah, excited to be here. Well, we try and get a little creative, so I appreciate the, the, the kudos on that. You know, look, you mentioned the UMass program and we'll, we'll start just briefly before that in, in that you went to Middlebury College, uh, which, you know, if, if one's looking at, uh, you know, an NBA player, uh, you know, a GM and they, they go, where's Middlebury? Um, most may not have the correct answer. And I'm going to put you on the spot too for uh, the mascot as well, because those listening uh, may go, what's, what might be the mascot of, of Middlebury College? What were the Panthers, the courageous, fearless Panthers of, of Middlebury College um, out of Vermont? Uh, Liz, I was really fortunate. Middlebury is an incredible school. It's a top five liberal arts school in the country. I was fortunate to uh, get a posse scholarship, uh, leadership scholarship um, out, of, out of New York City uh, to go to Middlebury. And at that time, uh, posse only had about five schools and they would offer full tuition scholarships to these, for these posse scholars. And now uh, posse is, is, is about 60 universities and colleges deep now. It sort of ages me, uh, but I had the wonderful opportunity to go to Middlebury um, and learn and grow. And, and you're right, you know, you, you graduate from these small liberal arts schools that are division three, you don't think of going on to professional sports, but I think we're uniquely equipped um, to, uh, to tackle a lot of problems um, and problem solve. And uh, out of these colleges, we, we become great writers, even though I hate to write papers. Um, we became great writers and we, we made arguments and had to back those up with data. And I think that's what we do every day. Um, as front office executives is, is make arguments, back them up with data, try to put um, you know, money to those problems in terms of what's the cost, what's the investment, um, and is it worth it? And then ultimately present it to your chairman um, and, and get funding for whatever solution you're trying to, to, to solve. So Middlebury was a, a tremendous foundation for me. Um, I also played at Local Amherst, played at local Amherst College, um, never got a win there, but, um, you know, I was familiar with the area because I'd go down there and play. And then while I was at UMass, I actually coached at Amherst College as well, which is right down the road, as you know. Um, and so it was a pretty, pretty neat experience all around. What did the coaching side of things do for you as you went and made that transition from playing to coaching? You know, most would would make that transition just trying to hang on to the sport. It's part of their identity. They don't know what else to do. Um, but you also had interest in real estate investments out of school as well. So you, 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 you know, going to the liberal arts college maybe kind of brought in your mind in that sense. 
I would say going to Middlebury College where I, I, I majored in sociology, but most of my friends majored in economics and we're gonna go into the finance world. And I think when you graduate from some of these sort of prestigious uh, schools, you think you have to go and make money right away. And so um, I went into real estate in New York City. Um, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, so I had a lot of, uh, you know, I was familiar with the area, uh, but it was commercial real estate and it was uh, competitive and I learned a lot. Um, and, and I did pretty well my first two, three years in the industry, um, learned negotiation, contracts, um, sort of being in the middle of deals and, and transactions and big transactions at that um, in terms of uh, selling multiple units at different uh, apartment buildings. And um, it was a, a fun industry to be in. I just missed being in basketball. And so I got back into coaching and that's where the UMass opportunity started. Um, I wanted to go back um, and get my master's in sports management, but I also wanted to coach at nearby Amherst College for the uh, legendary coach, Dave Hickson, who, who just retired uh, with over 800 wins. And he was a mentor to me. Um, but while I was coaching, I'd always have, you know, uh, you know Professor McKelvey or you know, uh, Professor Lisa Master Alexis in, in my ear asking me, you know, are you sure you don't want to get into the NBA in terms of the front office piece? Are, are you sure you don't like, you know, learning about the CBA? And I did, you know, uh, one of my, one of the best classes I took at UMass was labor relations and that was captivating and you saw it from a whole different side and the business side. And so I always had that in the back of my head, uh, but it's not that easy. You can't just say, all right, I want to go work for the NBA. So coaching sort of, uh, you know, to your point, kept me in it. Uh, but I got to, you know, I got to division one coaching um, and I thought that was going to be my path. I thought I was going to be a coach for, for a very long time. At some point you have, whether it's that aha moment or kind of that pivot you take from whether it's coaching into a different type of role. Uh, what was that moment for you uh, in order to get to where you are now? I would say uh, the breakthrough was, um, you know, at, at UMass, you get to have a mentor each, each year you're there. And the second year I was there, they set me up with um, Sean Ford, who is the director of men's programs for USA basketball. So you're talking about the highest level, you're talking about, you know, the Olympics on down. Um, but what he afforded me was an opportunity to one, learn and grow from him um, as an incredible leader in the industry, because uh, he works with every high level basketball mind in terms of coaches, GMs, and then also the players. And um, I got afforded the opportunity to go work for one of the junior teams um, that was going to go overseas and compete for a gold medal, the 19 and under team. And it was incredible. At that time, now these are underrated guys in terms of college basketball, but Clay Thompson was on the team. Gordon Hayward was on the team. Um, there was some really high level players on that team that were sort of uh, under the radar from a college perspective. And when I learned that I can work with that level of player, um, both intellectually, but also on the court, it sort of gave me the confidence to say, oh, you know what, I, I might be able to do it on that level. Because uh, I was, my comfort zone was, was, was division three um, and, and, and high level, um, you know, education school. So like, you know, Amherst, the Middlebury, that, that was sort of my niche. I can work in that, that and feel good um, in that space. But USA basketball is a whole nother level. And so now you're working with the best division one coaches, the best division one athletes, 
And when I felt comfort in that space, I realized, okay, I might have a chance to, to, to go to a much higher level. Uh, but I will say the Division three uh, level got me ready to be a grinder, to be a worker, um, you know, to, to, to be the best towel washer in the, in the, in the nation. Um, so uh, I sort of built up from there uh, to doing video, to working out guys, um, and gradually built, built my reputation and got more and more responsibility within the USA basketball program. Um, but, but never forget my deep three roots. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. Well, and you, you just learn almost a little bit about everything, right? To where you can at least understand where people are coming from, you know, sitting in the seat that you, you are in, you know, you're dealing with all sorts of different people. And at the end of the day, you're trying to surround yourself with the best people uh, that you possibly can that are good at what they do. Uh, that way you can utilize their talents, right? And so how do you go about surrounding yourself with, you know, people that are better than you in certain areas and, and trying to ultimately, um, you know, create an environment where everyone's learning from each other? 100%. Um, you know, I think taking a step back, one, you know, you, we're, we're just so fortunate to be in the professional sports business, right? So just just every day you're sort of humbled and, I'm excited to go to work because you get to work for an NBA franchise. I think I tell people that all the time. I get to watch basketball for a living, right? So it's a tremendous honor. And so taking a step back, okay, so it's about the Cleveland Cavaliers, the organization first. And so who are we putting around our players to make them better so they can be successful and compete at the highest level? And that's my job, obviously, to procure great talent uh, for the franchise but also put wonderful people around them with different skill sets and being forward thinking. Um, because at the end of the day, we, we need them to succeed. And, you know, we've gone through a, a few transitions since I've been here. Um, you know, one of which was for four straight years going to the NBA finals. And that was all about, you know, using all your assets to go all in to get back to the finals. Draft picks, not about player development, getting older vets that can help you get to that next round. And so that was a whole different mission. Now, uh, this mission that we're on now with, with a younger team and growing them is to what you're saying is, let's get the right people to be around them from a professional standpoint, from a player development standpoint, uh, performance, what goes into performance, nutrition, sleep, uh, how we eat, um, you know, our recovery, um, our mental health, and so I think um, the whole plan is a, a, a much more robust plan than people realize in terms of, of, um, of player development. It's not just on the floor, it's, it's off the floor. And, you know, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't get the best and the brightest in each one of those capacities that are way smarter than me and, and can achieve uh, at those, at, in those spaces at a high level. And I think you have to delegate a lot and you have to learn um, and be really curious about each sort of division within your franchise um, and, and try to get to know that and support those areas. Um, ultimately make, make decisions um, about priorities, but, but definitely want to um, elevate and give people responsibility and own their spaces um, and get really, really bright uh, forward-thinking, smart people in the building. No doubt. And you mentioned that transition of being in that realm of where you were you know, going to the finals every year. And um, look, you were able to 
have the opportunity to go be the GM and, and be promoted right after you win a championship in probably the biggest year of the entire franchise's history, right? And having to fill those shoes and, and fill that seat and live up to the expectations. You mentioned confidence earlier in the episode, and I have to imagine that that played a huge role in your ability to do so and step in. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, the, the experiences and the preparation that you then felt uh, confident to take over that role. <laughs> I wouldn't say confident. Um, you, you're never, you, you know, you're never supremely confident in these positions, only just because you never get, know what's going to be thrown at you. Um, and so you almost have to be sort of ready to adjust and, and be nimble. But I was thrown into the fire. And I like to say that first year felt like five years um, w w when we had to take over. And I got a lot of experience really, really fast. We had to do a lot of things um, in my first year um, that that normally would, would probably be over the course of three or four years in terms uh, of a GM's experience. Um, you know, for, for usually you don't take over a team that has, you know, LeBron James and, and uh, championship aspirations. I was fortunate that a mentor of mine, David Griffin, who was uh, the GM before me, um, sort of grew me into the role. And and when I say that, you know, he gave me experiences in that I was in the room. You know, I was in the room for trade discussions. I was in the room for uh, um, trade deadline, uh, the draft, uh, when he talked to agents, um, and slowly built me up for upper level management. Um, and I also think, you know, our chairman, um, Dan Gilbert, as well, has always invested in me since day one. And this is going on my eighth year being in Cleveland. Uh, being in the room with with your owner is a unique experience. Um, not not so much because you're overwhelmed a little bit by the, the capacity of of of, of such a, a brain of Dan Gilbert, uh, but just getting insight from him and being a part of his discussions and what he's thinking. And so all of that led to a development path and growth that I've felt since day one of being in Cleveland. That's just been tremendous. And and and. Um, very, very fortunate that they've invested in me at, at that level. And um, was I ready? Absolutely not. I don't think anyone's fully ready. Um, and I don't think you're ever ready. If you think you're ready uh, for each day, um, you're getting whacked in the face and, and humbled. This league will humble you fast. So I think for us, we want to be prepared. Uh, that's how you can, can, can get confidence is you get prepared for every actuality, every potential um, opportunity, um, doing your, 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 your intel collection in terms of players, um, doing your diligence, uh, getting background, talking to people around the league. Um, again, surrounding yourself with knowledgeable people that push you, that disagree with you. Um, and then ultimately, you know, combining efforts, coming out of the room unified and being prepared. And you still might be wrong, uh, but, but you feel much better about your process. And that's, that's sort of where we are uh, with the Cavs and, and, and uh, we feel good about our process. No, you mentioned that preparation point and that's so key because uh, I'm sure as you alluded to most days, you just got to figure it out. There is no, <laughs> there's no way about going about your day, right? You're just constantly thrown uh, in different realms in which you have to deal with and deal with different people and different uh, problems. And as you think about the lessons that you've learned over the last couple of years, um, what's one that you've learned being in, in the seat that you are, but that still relates to those who are trying to get their foot into the, into the industry or 
they're trying to make that move or, or do something different. So preparation means a whole lot of things, um, whether you're going into a high stakes negotiation with a trade or you're going into your first interview with, um, you know, a CEO or a manager um, of, of a division of a company you're looking to get hired at. And so it, there's different cast of characters for each one of those conversations, but you should know details about those people before you even have that phone call or that face-to-face -face interaction or in today's day and age, uh, the Zoom call. So uh, are you ready to, to, to bring up a few things um, that are personal to that, that person that you might be interviewing with or negotiating with that might light them up, that might um, show some human side to you and them and give you a much better conversation than just a back and forth Q&A sort of thing. Um, I, I think that to me um, gives people uh, a leg up. You know, you'd be, you'd be surprised um, at, you know, the amount of interviews that we do. Um, and I'm not to my own horn, but someone wouldn't, wouldn't know that I went to Middlebury. I wouldn't know that I worked for USA Basketball. Just going completely off the Cavs thing. And then you have people that do their research and find out that there is rapport there, there is commonality there, that there is shared experience there. And it just opens up to a much deeper level of conversation from any walk of life, like, like I said, you know. And, and so I think the preparation piece goes more so to getting to know um, who you're talking to on a deeper level, what's gonna make the conversation a little bit lighter um, what's going to separate you from the endless amounts of resumes that come across the desk? Um, it's going to be that one-on-one -on -one interaction, that face-to-face -face interaction, whether it's virtual or in person. And then uh, what's going to stick with us is, is how much preparation and work you did, not just about myself, but about the franchise, who works here, the history, and how you can help. And, and so I think that's, that's really important. No, that's great advice. I'll throw a personal one at you. Uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is coming up. Uh, yep. What's your What's your favorite part about both holidays? Uh, and then on the Yom Kippur side, what's What's the go to meal when you break that fast? Well, the break fast is for sure the the the, the preeminent. You know, I mean, I think we all sacrifice, and then we what we do is is try, each year try to figure out what we're gonna go to, and and that bagel. So I miss being in New York for the breakfast the most. Um, and uh, my my former boss from real estate, Joel Radman, um, his his mom Arlene put together the best breakfast in the world. And you talk about the different what are the, the lox or the herring salad or the white fish or I mean just everything. The bagel. noodle noodle kugel. Google is a great one, um, but but um, that that's probably probably the one. I think what's hard now too is like as you're starting to plan for the holidays, um, you know we're, we're in the middle of two crises. Really, is is obviously the pandemic, and um, you know as you know, you know we're, we're younger and we can travel, um, but you're around some some of the older generations, and you don't know, you don't want to do anything to affect them, even though these traditions are really, really important that they're handing down to us. You sort of look to them to help conduct these, these sort of religious um, 
fest, you know, festivals and, and all these things, these traditions. And um, I, I don't know what we're going to do. And, and if it's going to be virtual, it's going to be virtual, but it's going to be really, really sad. Um, the other crisis, um, obviously, is, is social injustice movement that uh, we're all a part of and that we have a great deal of responsibility to talk about and, and raise awareness for. And so that's not lost on me as well, um, you know, as we, as we go and flip the calendar into fall. Um, we have to keep the movement going. We have to create awareness. Um, and, and um, you know, me being an African-American general manager, it's not lost on me um, that I can provide inspiration, but I also have to do more. And we have to step out of our comfort zones and take risks and just make sure uh, that, that people understand that a certain segment of the population, our black communities, have been under siege for hundreds of years. And so it's not good enough to be neutral anymore. You know, what are we as individuals, as organizations doing to help change this? Because um, this is, a, it's a humanity, a humanities issue. It's, you know, it's a human race issue. Uh, and, and um, you know, we're very excited as an organization to, to be trying to lead into that, into that space. No, you bring up a great point. And, and look, I think back to, you know, being fortunate to be working at home right now, you know, doing a virtual Passover, I don't think anyone would have thought you'd be doing a virtual Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and maybe even Hanukkah at this point. It's kind of surreal, but, you know, you brought up the being an African-American minority GM. And for those that are listening um, that need that little bit of inspiration or advice or whatever it might be, what's, what's one piece of uh, insights that you might have for those that are listening? And, and also on the other side, because it's very important that you know, anyone who's not a minority also understands the same perspective, right? And, and how do you um, take the perspective and think about it and, and, and go about your ways? So um, what's, what's one piece of advice in that sense? Well, I think it's, it's twofold. One, hiring is, is really, really important um, for um, all listeners out there, including myself, that have the capacity to make decisions. Um, and going out of your way to try to find those candidates and, find, and have a diverse pool. Um, if we open up a position tomorrow, um, I, I can guarantee you that 85% of the applicants would probably be white and, and well qualified. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't hire that person, right? But let's make the, let's make the search more diverse. Um, and that goes from not just, you know, African-Americans, but, but, but women as well. Um, you know, we've been very proactive in that regard. You know, women are uh, incredible resources, and, and for me, particularly on the basketball side, um, you know, we, we, are, we were fortunate to hire Lindsey Gottlieb, who was the former head coach for Cal women's basketball, and uh, we hired her to be a basketball coach and develop our young guys and create rapport, and she's gone above and beyond that, but, but she's, she's been great for me, and, and she challenges me, but she also has a great voice um, and a great way about her, and so for every opportunity that we open now, I, you know, just because of Lindsay, I'm like, we have to, we have to find, um, you know, women for these positions because it just, it, it diversifies the tone in the room and, and the tenor um, and, and intellectually, um, obviously you want the most diversity you can have in a room. So it's going to make your company better. That's the bottom line. It's not just to check a box. It's going to, it's going to make your company better when you diversify a search and you diversify 
your rooms and you diversify the decision makers and, and, and the people that have opinions within in your room. The other part about it is, is, is you, we have talent within our organizations. And I use myself as an example is, how do you invest in that talent? You know, how do you invest in that diversity that's already in your house? Um, you know, how do you get them involved? And there's, there's ways to go about it, continuing education, um, you know, obviously developing them in different ways. But I like to say, have them in the room. You know, obviously uh, can't have everybody in the room, but have them in the room when you're having real conversations and making decisions and they will grow. That's how you ultimately grow somebody is, is with experience and to be in the room. And so um, that's the advice I would offer to, you know, a lot of the CEOs and decision makers out there. Um, and then for people trying to get themselves in the door, be persistent, you know, be persistent. Um, it's not to me, you know, for me, it wasn't MBA or bust. Um, you know, I started in the, uh, I was started as a freshman high school coach at Xavier High School in, in New York City. Um, coach Joe McGrain gave me an opportunity to work with his freshman basketball team. And I treated it like it was, you know, Madison Square Garden. It was, you know, it was exciting every day to go to work and, and be a part of that. And, and you build your way up and you gain more and more responsibility. Um, and, and, and that's what people are looking for, you know, being trustworthy, uh, honorable and, and, and loyal. And, and you'll get your, you'll get your opportunity. Yeah, you make a great point. And, and the respect that, you know, there's so many people from different experiences, different walks of life. And at the end of the day, each experience grows upon each other, uh, you know, and, and that you're sitting in sitting in the seat now that you're in, you're going to take something that you learned back when you were the freshman high school basketball coach, right? There's, there's always something to take from each experience. Um, and as we wrap up the episode, you know, I want to, I want to hit on, you know, kind of your journey as a whole. And, and um, the fact that, you know, you were a GM at what, 34, is that, do I have the age correct? Or mm -hmm. so, somewhere around there, right? And that's not common, right? And, and trying to kind of um, be uncomfortable and go, you know, outside of, of what's, quote, unquote, the expectation or, um, what's the norm, right? Now we're in the new different, as as our co-host Andy Dulwich likes to say, the new different. You know, what is the new different going to look like? And as you move forward, and you know, you're thinking about things differently. Um, what are some of those things that ultimately, you know, you're thinking twice about because you never did before? Yeah, it, it's a um, great question. I think we all have to be tremendously curious about what the what's next. Um, and, and being on the forefront of, of technology that, that could help give you an advantage. Um, I think for the listeners out there, you know, we, we, we never thought we'd be without fans in the building, right? We never thought that we'd have to contemplate, okay, how do we engage our fans um, with no fans in the building? And I'm not just talking about social media and different hits here and there, um, what does it look like with no fans in the building? And so for us, um, and I think as a league as a whole is, you know, we're, we're fascinated with how do we personalize these experiences even more? And, and we have to be really um, interested in the customer and, and, and what they want um, and, and do even more customer service, if you will. 
the talent takes care of itself. The NBA is an incredible level of talent. It's the best it's ever been. And, um, and I'm not knocking the, the generations before because I grew up a huge Knicks fan and those Knicks teams were the best teams to never win a championship. Um, I love those teams. Those teams can compete right now just off sheer toughness. But um, talent-wise, individual talents, we've captivating talents that, that transcend the globe. How are we reaching those fans um, that, that won't be able to get into the building? Um, and I think when we finally do get fans in the building, it doesn't change those interactions now, those touch points now. It's just the new normal. And, you know, you see down in Orlando in the bubble, so we have this, obviously, these huge uh, you know, jumbotrons that sort of show these virtual fans um, and these incredible angles of, 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 of the basketball players now, the robocams that get all this live content from different angles. Um, you get unbelievable audio. Um, and so how are, we, how are we bolstering our tools of, of content during this time and, and, and enhancing technology um, using AI services to figure out exactly what the fans want to see, when they want to see it, on what platform they want to see it. And I think we just got to be even more immensely focused on the customer experience because uh, they, they're, they're the ones that, that generate this revenue, help us generate this revenue. Um, and they, you know, we have an incredible fan base and we can't just rely on uh, the talent to, to get it done for us. We have to create even more robust platform to engage with them and, and keep them with us during these, these crazy times. But I think that's still going to be the normal. The new normal is, is the personalization for, for, for fans. Yeah, that's that business mind thinking. I mean, you know, on, on one of our episodes uh, with, with Dave Littlefield and Neil Huntington, you know, they talk about being the GM. You're the expense side. You get to rack up all the expenses, but you need the revenue to, uh, to ultimately help you there. And so, understanding uh, both sides of the table is, is extremely valuable, as you just mentioned. Um, Kobe, really appreciate your time. Any last thoughts for our listeners as uh, we, we say goodbye? We're in great shape in terms of the industry, um, live sports, live content in general. Um, you can tell just the pent-up demand. Um, as you know, if you, you know, if you opened up one of your golf courses to a real – um, you know, experience right now, you'd have thousands, tens of thousands that would want to come and you have to sort of obviously um, slowly roll that out. We're the same way. Um, there's pent up demand. People want live content like none other. So as a professional sports industry um, and sports in general, college athletics, uh, we're in great shape. We just have to make sure uh, we're safe um, and, and everyone out there is safe. And, and the sooner we can get back to some level of normalcy, but I'm, I'm real bullish on, on sports. Um, there's nothing like it and we're going to continue to grow. Kobe, appreciate the wise words and uh, absolutely uh, look forward to kind of seeing what the, what the future holds and uh, welcome you on anytime in the near future. Uh, appreciate it and, and have a good uh, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll talk soon.